Let's pray again for just a second. Father, I think it was Luther that said the human heart is an idol-making factory. And we inherently, Lord, uh, fall into patterns of life in which we tend to make much of ourselves. Would you help us as we look at your word today, as we consider some of your glories, and especially as we, we consider your grace and your love for us in Christ, Lord, would you draw us out of ourselves? Would you help us to see you and your, your glories more clearly? Would you draw us, Lord, into the realms of worship as we make much of you? In Jesus' name, amen. We're in week four of six-week series called Here We Stand. We've highlighted a couple of different kinds of teachings so far already. Doctrinal elements, uh, Steve Green started us on uh, the beginning of this series when he talked about the Trinity. And in this series, when we talk about the doctrinal elements, we're talking about the things that matter, that historically matter to the church. These are the hills we say that we would die on theologically. These are the things Christians have laid down their lives for over the centuries, the doctrinal elements. We've also highlighted some functional elements that we simply want folks to know because they're part of who Lion and Lamb is. So when we talk about leadership structure or what we think servant leadership looks like, that's the functional element. We might disagree with other good brothers and sisters in Christ on those elements and we'd still be good to go. This morning we're back on a doctrinal element. We're going to be talking about the gospel and we will, in a workmanlike fashion I hope, work through. This is a, a heavy message. There's a lot to cover, a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to read a lot, which I try not to because it's easier for you to stay engaged if I'm not reading, but we'll read quite a bit this morning. Um, stick with me on that. Um, we won't cover every verse. By the way, on something like this, my tactic this morning is try to cover a bunch of points broadly. We're not going to cover a bunch of things in depth. We're not going to focus on one or two things deeply. We're going to cover about seven different aspects that the gospel message takes into account. Um, so I'm not going to say probably, I'm not going to cover bases on a lot of things you might assume you would have heard here this morning. But hopefully we're going to have a context for the gospel that puts us in a big picture and allows us to plug in more fully with who God is and what He's doing and what this gospel is all about. Kent mentioned a gospel primer. I think we've got eight copies of this in the back. If any of this this morning stirs you and you're thinking about these elements, uh, Milton Vincent wrote this. It's a very short book. It's easy to read. And like the ones that we've sold in the past on pride or on fear, it's not that there's something profoundly new in these books. It's not. It's the old truths out of the Bible. But it's just articulated very simply, very plainly in a way that lets you think through them again. And it's really good on all of the things we're selling back there. I've used them myself. They've impacted me. That's why we've got them here this morning. So if any of this stirs you, uh, Milton Vincent's A Gospel Primer at the back table would be a great follow-up. So if I say the term to you, gospel or the gospel, just stop for a moment. What's your first thought? So if you hear the term the gospel, you're in church, you're not in church, and someone says the gospel, or you hear the term gospel, what goes through your mind? So for some of us, maybe it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? The four Gospels. Or maybe it's your own conversion. 
Or for some of us, maybe it's confusing. We're not sure what to make of the term. It, it sounds like a loaded term, and of course it is. And so when people use it, maybe we're thinking, I'm not really sure what they mean when they say the Gospel. Or how about John 3.16? God loved the world, and so because He loved the world and we're lost, He sent His Son. If we believe in Him, we, we, we aren't going to be judged for our sins, but we're going to have eternal life instead. John 3.16 is the Gospel. Or if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, we've got a summary statement there by Paul that says uh, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He was buried. And he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. It's kind of a, a Gospel summary. And He says He appeared alive afterwards. But when you hear the term, what comes to mind? What's the Gospel all about? The term, our English term gospel comes from Old English and Anglo-Saxon and it means a good spell. Not not as in I'm casting a spell, but it's a good spell or a good message. And that English word translates the Greek term euangelion, which also means a, a good message. That term's used 77 times in the New Testament. Guys, this, there are a few messages that I prepare for that uh, um, affect me as much as this one has. I've had some time off a few weeks, and I've been working on this and some other things as well. But uh, when we're talking about the gospel, we're talking about a, an idea, a message, a concept, a, a work of God in Christ that's so profound, that's so deep, that's so wide, that you just can't do justice to it or its implications in any one setting. Let me just put some thoughts in your mind. Close your eyes while I read these if you want before we jump in. Gospel truths are like ocean breakers that knock me down when they hit the shore and then carry me back out on the surface of God's infinitely deep love. The truths of the Gospel dash all our hopes in and for ourselves and replace them with a hope in Christ that cannot, will not ever be disappointed. The Gospel, the truth of the Gospel in my life and yours, slays the old sinful, proud and deficient me and creates a new life in righteousness. The Gospel, appreciated, taken in, spoils me for the pleasures of this world, but offers in their place new and greater eternal pleasures and joys in Christ's presence. The Gospel causes me to see myself and everyone else in this world ultimately as either objects of God's eternal wrath or vessels into which He pours His mercies in Christ. The Gospel affects everything in our life. And nothing we say this morning can sort of comprehend or bring all of those elements together. The Gospel is the most powerful message, friends, any of us can communicate on this earth. There's no message that has transformed more lives than the Gospel. And one of the things I'm keenly aware of is that we as believers need to have a confidence in the power of the Gospel at a level most of us do not. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We can state the Gospel succinctly. We could quote John 3.16 and say that's the Gospel, and that'd be true. 
But the implications of the gospel cannot be summarized. They just go on and on and on. And for this morning, I want to come up with a working description or definition of the gospel. This is not what you typically hear. And it's just because I want us to have a a breadth of understanding about what we're going to be talking about that's adequate. So I hope you have a study sheet. Uh, This is a two-page study sheet for you guys. I never do two-page study sheets. All the verses that we're going over this morning are on that study sheet. They're printed out. You don't need to look anything up so you can focus on what we're doing. But And this description is on your study sheet as well. The Gospel, God's eternal plan to glorify Himself by redeeming sinful humans through the life, death, resurrection, and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for us this morning, a working description or definition of the Gospel God's eternal plan to glorify Himself by redeeming sinful humans through the life, death, resurrection, and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Let me read a paragraph that expands this a little bit and then we'll look through seven points that the Gospel specifically addresses. So, an expanded view of that description. And you'll recognize some phrases that are straight out of the New Testament, by the way, as I work through this. The Gospel, God the Father acting for the glory of the triune God and on our behalf, sent God the Son to the earth to become one of us in the Incarnation. Jesus the Son lived a sinless life and was voluntarily crucified by men according to the predetermined will of God to bear the penalty of the sins of the world. The Holy Spirit in concert with the Father and the Son raised Jesus from among the dead sin and death being conquered in His willing sacrifice and subsequent resurrection. Since the resurrection, forgiveness of sins and eternal life are offered to all who will accept the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Having received that forgiveness and new life, the redeemed enter God's kingdom, family, and church and begin a new life that will eventually usher them into God's presence and the full expression of God's eternal kingdom. That's a mouthful and it's a lot. And we'll look at these key points a little bit here one by one. On your study sheet, point one, the Gospel is God's eternal plan to demonstrate the excellences of His own glory. And I confess, I'm, I'm down to ten pages of my manuscript. I never do ten pages. Um, in trying to coalesce key elements of the Gospel, I'm in fact doubling up, as you'll see on a couple of these. So on point one, The Gospel is God's eternal plan. That's actually one point. But it demonstrates the excellences of His own glory. That's another point, but I've got them in one one point, point one. So we'll look at those in a couple different ways. When we read the Bible and we get to Genesis 3, if we start with the creation account in Genesis 1 and we get to Genesis 3 and we think God is surprised by the fall of Adam and Eve and sin and the temptation, then we don't know God and we don't know the Bible. Okay, there's There's no surprise for God in Genesis 3. The fall of man was known by God before it occurred. The necessity and the details of the Gospel are eternal in nature. God wasn't taken by surprise and the Gospel is not plan B. The Gospel is plan A. As far as God being taken by surprise on Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, if we're just talking about God properly related to theology, what is true of God? We say God is omniscient. 
And when we say God is omniscient, that means you can't tell God anything He doesn't already know. And nothing occurs that God doesn't already know. So just on the level of theology, not delving any deeper into the Scriptures, we know that God knew Adam and Eve would fall in sin. That was a given. He knew. So the necessity of the Gospel, that's not a surprise to God. We just know that from theology without going any further. But if we start looking at some Scriptures, we see that God says the Gospel, His provision for us in Christ, was out of His eternal plan and purposes. In Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The Gospel, Paul says, God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Before the creation of the heavens and the earth, God had already prepared in His eternal plan and purposes the Gospel. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, that was part and parcel of God's eternal plan. If you go a little further in Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verse 11, Paul there is referring to what he calls the mystery of the church when he says this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church was not a plan B or C or D based on Israel's failure or something God hadn't otherwise anticipated. Paul says related to what God's doing in your life and mine today in the church since the resurrection, he says that's part and parcel of God's eternal plan. This plan preceded the creation of the heavens and the earth. This plan preceded any decision you've ever made. It, it predates our existence. It predates Adam and Eve's existence. It predates the creation of the world. The gospel by its nature is eternal. It's not a surprise to God. It's not plan B. It was always in God's mind and will. You know, if you say gospel, typically for most of us, we're probably thinking of gospels, the gospel account, or we're thinking of New Testament theology or verses. But the first instance of the gospel, at least the hint of the gospel, is in Genesis 3.15. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, which just means it's the first declaration of the good news God was going to bring about for us in our redemption. So, in Genesis 3.15, when God addresses the serpent after the fall, He says He's going to put enmity between you, the serpent and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and Eve's ultimate offspring, which is Jesus, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise His heel. This was plan A. God knew, anticipated, of course, the fall of Adam and Eve, and He said, this is what I'm going to be doing. Uh, one day, Eve's descendant, Jesus, God the Son come in flesh, is going to destroy Satan and his works. And so if you get down to Hebrews, by the way, there's so many verses, we are not going to cover them all, but you'll see on your study, verse, study sheet, Hebrews 2 and 1 John says that's exactly what Jesus did in His crucifixion and resurrection. He did exactly what Genesis 3.15, God said He would. So, the Gospel was part of God's eternal plan. God has always known what He was going to do for us in Christ. No surprise there. The eternal plan to use creation, man, Satan, God, and the Son was all to demonstrate God's own glories. 
if, if we say God looks from eternity past, He looks at his, this proposition to create the heavens and the earth and put man in His image on it, and God knows that man's going to fall and sin and bring sin and death into the world, why does God still do that? If you told me, Mike, you're going to drive down the road today and you're going to be in a train wreck, I'd say, man, I'm not getting in my car. So God knows that sin is going to occur, that sin's going to bring death. Just think of all that's occurred on this earth. And I mean all the evil, all the damage, all the carnage, all the harm. And you say, God knew all of this beforehand and He still went through with this plan. Why did He do that? And the Scriptures say very, very clearly, God did this to demonstrate His own glories. Now, if I told you that my goal in life is to glorify myself and every conversation, everything I do, all my interaction with you, it's about me. Isn't that nice? You'd say, Mike, get a life. And I would agree with you. If anyone but God said this, it would make no sense. But this is the deal. Because God is absolutely perfect in all that He is, all that He says, all that He does, if God does something to demonstrate His own glory, that is inherently a good thing. If God is putting on display His own excellences, His own character traits, His own power and will and glory, that's inherently a good thing. And at the end of the day, God said it's worth the carnage. In fact, it was worth God the Son dying an agonizing death, cut off by His Father on the cross. It was worth it to demonstrate God's own glories. I heard a little bit of something in Mosaic this morning. And all of life is about God glorifying Himself. And if you want to get online on the train of what God's doing, then it's about us glorifying God. And that's what He says He's doing in and through the Gospel, in and through Christ. So for instance, in Romans 9.23, God says that He's patiently enduring what He calls vessels of wrath. And friends, vessels of wrath are people that will not be redeemed and are going to suffer separation from God and Christ. They're going to be in hell forever. Vessels of wrath. And they're antagonistic to God and they defy God and they hate God. And so the question arises, well, why does God put up with them? Paul says for this, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. God is demonstrating the riches of His glory in being patient towards vessels of wrath. That's what he's doing. He's demonstrating his own glory. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, and then 12 and 13 also. Paul says again, He predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace. What was God up to? The praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12 and 13 we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, you were sealed with the promised Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. To the praise of His glory. You get this theme. This is repeated over and over. In the Gospel, God is glorifying Himself. And He's putting His perfections on display for us to see them and enjoy Him and His perfections. That's what the Gospel is about. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 7, 4 through 7. Ephesians 2 starts with telling us you're dead in trespass and sin. You've got a problem. 
But God has acted in mercy, love, and grace when you were spiritually dead. And listen to this in verse 7. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What's your salvation and mine about? It's to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Through the Gospel, God is demonstrating His own perfections, His grace, key among them. Grace, the favor He chooses to bestow on us even though we are train wrecks and rebels against Him. The Gospel is demonstrating God's own glories. In Revelation 5, this is just an outstanding passage in all the Bible, frankly, on worship. Revelation 5 is just at, sort of at the top of my list. But in this passage, we join myriads of angels and the four living creatures from around God's throne and the elders in heaven who appear to represent both Israel and the church in this unique scene of worship. And notice as we read through this that the worship being lavished on the Son here is due primarily to His sin-bearing role. In other words, when we see Jesus in heaven, we could simply praise Him as God the Son apart from the Incarnation, couldn't we? Just like we praise the Father or the Spirit. But the worship attributed to Jesus in Revelation 5 has all to do with His Gospel role, with His redemptive role. So they are saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb of God, God the Son become one of us to bear our sins on the cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Worthy is God the Son as the Lamb of God. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne, to God the Father, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and they fall down and worship. When we get to heaven, guys, we are going to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, and we are going to join this throng, and we are going to worship God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, as the Lamb of God who came to fulfill God's gospel orientation to honor Himself through the redemption of mankind. We're worshiping Jesus there as the Lamb of God, the redemptive element of the Son of God's life. The Gospel is the means by which, and this is so profound by the way, this, I, I still can't get over around this. Uh, the Gospel is the means by which God the Father has chosen to heap glory and honor on His Son. And then the Son turns around and heaps and praises and heaps honor on God the Father for what they've done through the Gospel. Through redemption. This is, this is profound, profound stuff. And this is your future and mine. By the way, if you find your heart cold towards worship, you know, when we stand to pray or when we kneel to pray or sing or whatever it is that we're worshiping God, we've just got dull, cold hearts because we're forgetting what God in Christ has done for us if our hearts aren't prepared to simply worship and praise God. And that's what we're headed to. And when we're stripped of all this fallenness of our humanity, still tied to these flesh and blood sinful bodies, we're going to be ready to worship and that's what we're going to be about.
And God has, God has, as it were, concentrated our worship through the Gospel. So it's about His honor. It's about His glory. The more we see of the Gospel and the truth and the implications of the Gospel, the more fully we behold the glories of God. And that's what God wants us to do, to see His glory. The Gospel is about a person. Jesus is not some tangent on the Gospel. If we just communicate facts and information, we're missing the point of the Gospel. The Gospel is about Jesus. And the Gospel is about you and I entering fellowship with God and knowing Him and enjoying life because we're reconnected to a person, to God Himself. In the conversations in your head or you have with others, if our conversations about the Gospel are primarily information-focused, and the Gospel is information, I'm not minimizing that, But if it's information at the expense of the person of Christ, we have missed the Gospel. If our interaction with others and unbelievers is primarily apologetics, I would argue we've missed the key concept of the Gospel. I'm all for apologetics, but I've said this many times, I'm convinced apologetics are primarily for Christians, not the unsaved. Because as we know, it's the Gospel that saves. It's not our apologetics. The Gospel is the power of God to salvation, not our apologetics. So when we're thinking about the Gospel or we're talking to other people, make sure we're talking about a person. That the Gospel is about Jesus and His person, who He was, God the Son, come in flesh, become one of us. And He did that to restore us to a personal relationship with God the Father. The Gospel is personal. And if we render it to data and apologetics and information only, those may be facts and they may be helpful, but that's not the same as saying our focus is on the person of Christ and the restored relationship with God the Father. Jesus said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The goal there is to be restored to the Father. That's relationship. That's not information. That's relationship. Or John 17.3, this is eternal life. Jesus said that they may know you the only true God. Friends, if we're unsaved, we do not know God. Paul says later in Ephesians 4, we are without God and therefore without hope as the unsaved, as those who have not yet embraced the Gospel. Jesus in the Gospel. So Jesus says eternal life is to know God the Father and to know Jesus the Son. So the Gospel is about a person in Jesus and it's about restoration to God the Father. If we're thinking or communicating to others something less than that personal restoration, we're missing the key concept of the Gospel. People will often wonder why the Bible doesn't describe eternity. In fact, I don't know how many times I've been asked this question, why doesn't Revelation say more about what the new heavens and the new earth looks like, what we're doing, etc., etc., and my response is always the same. It's because those are incidentals. It's because all that matters is you're with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's all that matters. It's like the newlyweds when they get married. Do you care how good the hotel is? Or if you're camping out when you're on your honeymoon, all you care is that you're with your beloved and your beloved's with you. And that's the same going forward with heaven, in heaven. It's that we're with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. That's what matters. The other things are simply incidentals. 
Third point, uh, the gospel good news here assumes there's bad news. You know, it'd be possible for me to tell you, I have good news, you're going to have an outstanding lunch today. And you say, well, that's great. There's no downside to that, right? We're going to have lunch, it's going to be a great lunch. Okay, great. But the gospel's not like that. The gospel assumes a very, 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 very bad message, truth, and reality. And friends, this is there's a couple points here that I think for us as Christians, most of us here I know are believers, for us as Christians, this is one of the points that we really need to get a hold of. Because I think there's a couple things that we minimize in our mind and it affects the way we don't see what God wants us to see. It affects the way we think. There's bad news that sets up the good news. And when you and I think about this or when we share with others, it's failure to grasp the significance, the totality, the reality of the bad news that keeps some of us from ever trusting Christ as a key issue. Or for us as believers, keeps us from being appropriately motivated to share the Gospel with others. So let me give you my description of you and me. You and I and all of humanity from conception to the grave are sinful and deficient through and through. We've never had a truly holy, selfless thought or motive in our life. Ever, not one. Every thought, word, and act is tainted by the refuse of our own corrupt humanity. The very best among us can present to God a morality no better than the filthiest of rags. We are self-centered, self-serving, vain idolaters worshiping at our own altars. We are God-rejectors and God-deniers. We are born into futility and are on our way to hell under the righteous judgment of a perfect and holy God. You know, we're here this morning, we're religious at least, right? Because we're in a church service on Sunday morning. But you know, you think about this and you might say, I go to church or I'm moral and therefore I'm not a God rejecter. And I would say, well, you know, when I read the Gospels, I've got a religious group that reject God. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish Sanhedrin. Friends, they were in synagogue every week. They knew their Bibles. And they rejected God in the person of Christ. Being religious has nothing to do with anything. That's just, we're wired that way. We're wired to worship something and someone, and usually it's us. might be something else. This description is true of all of us. It's true of everyone from Adam and Eve down. We aren't a little lost. We're totally lost. We're not just tainted by sin a little bit. We're entirely sinful through and through. We are not lost a little, finding our way back to God. We are lost utterly. And we need a Savior. This is the bad news. Paul says it this way in Romans 3, 10-12, there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's all of us. That's bad news. And of course, the news gets worse when we consider what the end of sinful creatures like you and I might be. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, gives another description, dead in trespass and sins. Again, the phrase in Ephesians later, 
They're without God and without hope. For me, that just encompasses this thought of life apart from Christ. Without God and therefore, you got no hope. What a way to live. The unwillingness of the spiritually lost to embrace the gospel is due in part, significantly at least, to a failure to grasp the reality, the eternality and the significance of the bad news. But also for you and I, this plays a part too, our inability to declare God's righteous judgment on those who refuse the salvation produced in Christ, I think, is due primarily to a failure to grasp all of this reality that we are utterly lost and in God's eyes, utterly detestable. God's holy and we're not. He's so holy we can't imagine it. And we think we're a little sinful and God says, you don't get it. You're lost, you're deficient through and through. No good thing in us. The remarkable goodness of the good news only makes sense if there's a terrible truth that's being addressed. On this point, do you remember in Genesis 19, the angels come to Sodom and they tell Lot, you know what, God's going to destroy this place really soon, you better get out. And Lot tells his sons-in-law, at least they're engaged to his daughters, hey, we've got to get out of here because God's going to destroy the city. Now, you've got two groups here and you've got two responses. Lot and his family, they run. They get out of town. The sons-in-law, they don't. And what's the difference? It's their perception of the threat. It's their perception of the message. The guys who stay, they don't believe destruction's coming. And Lot does. What they believed about the bad news determined how they responded to it. And I just think for a lot of us, even as Christians, we minimize the profound nature of the bad news. We are lost and we are under God's righteous judgment. Fourth point, the gospel is about two things again here. Sorry as we cram these things together. The gospel is about what A, God has done, and B, with my past, my present, and my future. What God has done with my past, my present, and my future. You know, every religion on the earth and every philosophy that's not the Christian faith they propose some worldview that assumes that you and I can somehow climb our way back up the ladder to heaven, right? Um, there's something you and I can do to help save ourselves. We can get holier somehow by doing this or that. We can somehow work our way closer to God. Everything that's not the Christian faith supposes there's something we can do to restore ourselves. And those are all opposed to the Christian faith and the truths of the gospel. The gospel says it's what God has done for us. It's not what we do for God. The gospel is about what God has done for us in Christ, not what we do for God. Romans 5.8, Paul said, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Paul later in this same epistle will say that when I'm in the flesh as a sinner, there's no good thing that I can do. Romans 3 said, I've rejected God already. And in that state, God has moved on my behalf and yours. While I was a sinner, God chose to love me, set His love on me in Christ. We weren't nice people that God said, I'll give you a little blessing and a pat on the head. 
we were reprobate and sinners, and God said, while you're in this state, I'm going to come down and do something for you. Uh, let me read through Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. If you've got a study sheet, I have uh, cut up this passage a little bit to try and emphasize the contrast I think we're meant to get between what God has done for us and what our state was otherwise. So you can read along. If you don't have a study sheet, listen, I'll try and emphasize this. So Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, he, Paul's already told us you're lost, you're dead spiritually, God's got to do something for you. So it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when, this was our state, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, at that time God made us alive together with Christ. By God's grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Him, and God seated us with Him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show, this is back to God demonstrating His own glory, so that He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness, His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by God's grace you have been saved through faith. Disclaimer, this is not your own doing. This isn't what you did. This isn't what you worked up. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of our works. It's not what we did. It's not what we provided. It wasn't our goodness. Not as a result of our works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when we're thinking of the Gospel, guys, we're thinking about what God has done for us in Christ. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what God has done. Beginning to end, the Gospel is about what God has done for us. For time's sake, I'm just going to run through a few of the things that are part of that. God justifies us. That means God puts us in right standing before Him. Paul will say in Romans 8.38, if God justifies us, who can lay a charge or a claim against us? We stand perfect in Christ through acceptance of the Gospel. In Christ, we're justified before a holy and perfect and righteous God. God sanctifies us. To be sanctified means to be holy or to be set apart. Just point out in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. By the way, Bill Bider is going to teach on this subject, this theme, next week. So make sure you hear that. Uh, sanctified and saints, it's the same Greek root word. It, it means holy ones. Ha, uh, uh, that you've been set apart and you're holy. That's what a saint means. You're set apart. We're sanctified. God glorifies us. That means that we're going to share Christ's new creation status and honor. I won't go into the rest of that. You can read these verses later on your own. Also, there's a short table there that talks about the implications of the Gospel on your past, your present, and your future, what God has done for us in that. I'm shifting gears here at point five intentionally. So we've just said the gospel beginning to end is about what God has done for us. The forgiveness and the eternal life offered through the gospel, we receive that, we'll close with this, through faith, right? We don't work for it, we simply accept it, we receive it. The gospel is absolutely free, it's about God's grace on our behalf. However, the gospel makes demands of us having freely received the gift of eternal life and the remission of our sins having come into the kingdom of Christ and the family of God and the church the gospel now implies 
that I have a responsibility towards God to change the way I live. The Gospel makes demands of me. And this is because the Gospel isn't just God uh, saving me and forgiving my sins. The Gospel is God reaching down His hand and picking me up and you up and saying, you are mine. You're mine. And I now have some expectations of you. Paul takes 11 chapters in his magnum opus, the Epistle to the Romans, to do nothing but develop the themes of the Gospel. 11 chapters. I'll bet most of us have never read those 11 chapters in one sitting. He takes 11 chapters to develop just the themes of the Gospel before he gets to chapter 12 and makes an application. And his first application says, you know what, based on all these things that are true of you, in and through the Gospel, because of what Jesus has done for you, This is the only thing that makes sense for you and me to do, Romans 12. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says, map it out, look it all over. When you understand what God has done for you in Christ, the only rational, appropriate thing to do is to treat the rest of your life like it's an offering to God put on the altar. You know, for the Jews and the Romans, this was an image that was easy to see in their minds because they did it routinely. But if you took the carcass of an animal and you put it on the altar, it was burned up and consumed for God. It didn't belong to you anymore. It belonged to God. Paul says bring that mentality to your life after you've received the free gift of eternal life. Understand that God has now called your life to be given over entirely to Him. Now, this is not a new concept. You know, if you read the Gospels, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me and follow me, let him take up his cross to follow me. That's death. That's death to what I wanted, who I was, where I was going. That's a new life. Paul says when you've received that new life through reception of the Gospel, the person of Christ, the only appropriate thing to do is to offer back to God all that we are, all that we think, all that we do. 1 Peter 1 14 through 16 puts it this way. Be like obedient children, not conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We have a new spiritual father. And he says, I'm holy, Junior, and I expect you to grow up to be like me. Holy, set apart from sin. Your life and my life should be dedicated to God. Through the Gospel, we become members of King Jesus' kingdom. He's a great and awesome King, and He demands and deserves our faithfulness and loyalty. And that's not just going to church on Sunday. It's not how much or how often we give. That's about a style of living. It's about a, a life view that all that I have and do is meant ultimately for God's glory. So the Gospel makes demands on those of us who've been redeemed by God's free gift through grace of forgiveness and life. Following up on that theme, point six on your study sheet, the Gospel can and should be communicated with confidence. Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And let me just ask you to stop for a minute. Don't raise your hand. Don't look at anybody else. If I ask you, are you ashamed of the Gospel? Are you embarrassed of the Gospel? I'll bet most of us in here are. I would guarantee most of us in here are, and I think it's a product of the age we live in. 
Do you know I'm convinced that the kind of oppression and spiritual warfare you and I face, it's not imprisonment for most of us, is it? Uh, Some Christians are losing businesses over having a Christian conviction these days. But it's not imprisonment, it's not death, it's not the confiscation of our property that most of us are going to face, is it? It's it's, uh, embarrassment. It's the thought that someone else will look at us and think we're weird. And guys, I think this is a despicable plot from the enemy, and I think it's hampered almost all Christians in this country from freely sharing the gospel and identifying themselves as belonging to Christ. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I'm convinced today most Christians are ashamed of the gospel. And so what that would look like is this. Uh, how frequently do I just talk to others about Christ and the gospel? That'd be a pretty good litmus test, wouldn't it? If, people, if I believe, as the gospel states, that apart from Christ, everyone's going to hell, if that's reality, then if I care about anybody else or God's glory, I would be sharing the message that saves them and brings them into God's kingdom, wouldn't I? That would make sense, right? We'd communicate that. So when I'm around others, do I cringe when I think about how am I going to slip in the gospel? Am I embarrassed when I think somebody might find out I'm a Christian? This is where the rubber meets the road for us. I think that we are ashamed of the gospel. And I think that's, again, because we simply fail to apprehend how lost we were and how found we are, and how profound the warfare between heaven and earth really is. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he said, it's the power of God for salvation. You know, if I go fishing, I don't throw a bare hook out in the water and reel it back in. I put bait on that hook, right? That's what I do. If I want to be serious about being part of seeing men and women, boys and girls, come to saving faith in Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and know they're going to heaven to be with Christ forever, you know, part of that process would be putting bait on the hook. It would be declaring the Gospel. It would be communicating the simple truths of the Gospel. Guys, we're lost. We're not what we should be. God's done something about that. Jesus took on our flesh, died for our sins. He was buried. He was really dead. And He rose from the dead and He offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's what I would be communicating if I want to be a part of seeing folks come into the kingdom of heaven, right? Sins forgiven and eternal life. I'd be doing that. If I'm not doing that, what does that say? I think for most of us, again, I think it's fear. I think it's embarrassment. I think it's shame. And guys, we've got to get over ourselves. We're not that important. God is the one. Christ is the thing. Are we communicating that to others? Jay and Darby, one of my favorite early dispensationalists, he said that any time he was in a new situation, he made sure that at the earliest opportunity, he made sure everyone there knew he was a Christian. And we as Christians, we've got to be like Darby. We've got to be proactive about declaring ourselves as belonging to Christ so that that cape that I think the world and the devil try and put over our shoulders of embarrassment isn't what's affecting us that we're working against the world, the flesh, and the devil from silencing us because, Matthew 28 says, we are called to be witnesses. The term there is martyrs. Most of the time we witness to Christ with our words. Some of us will witness to Christ with our death. But we are called to be witnesses. Jesus said, this is powerful, by the way, and this is in the salvation verse. Mark 8, 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him Will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father and with the holy angels? Does that strike you? 
Jesus is saying essentially, how dare you be ashamed of me and the gospel? You live in a cesspool and you'd be embarrassed of me and my righteousness and what I've done for you? How dare you be? How dare I be embarrassed or ashamed of Christ and the gospel? I don't want Christ to be ashamed because I said, well, I, I didn't want him to think I was a Christian. I was afraid what they would think of me. Can you imagine standing in the glories of heaven and saying I was embarrassed or I was ashamed to say I belong to Christ? God forbid it, but guys, this is the spirit of the age and it's active and it's at work in me and in you and in the church. We're ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel is God's power for salvation. You know, I knew I'd run long, and I'm sorry, I apologize. I'll wind this down as quickly as I can without foregoing a couple of key points, okay? I've heard some of you in this group mention Francis of Assisi when talking about the gospel. And you know what the quote is? Uh, Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. And you know what that is for us? It's cover. It's cover for not verbally sharing the gospel. That's what it is. So you read about Francis of Assisi. This is a guy who stripped himself naked in front of a crowd to renounce his father's wealth and the possessions of the world. You're willing to do that? I might take that quote seriously out of your lips. And he was already on street corners and on streets in the countryside proclaiming the gospel. So if you quote Francis, you give me a little credibility behind that and I might listen to you. But other than that, we are called to be witnesses And that means verbally. Don't be a nice person while your neighbors go to hell. Talk to them about the gospel. We know everyone's not going to be saved, guys. We know this. God is going to glorify Himself through His righteous judgment on vessels of wrath and hell forever. That's part of the the gospel message. But I do know this. I know that the folks who get saved are going to hear the gospel. That much I know. And you and I can and should share this with confidence because it is the simple proclamation of the gospel that God uses to save people. We don't got to get fancy. You know, with apologetics, we're concerned about intellectuals and academics and old earth, new earth, evolution, revolution, whatever. You know what? I love it all. Frankly, I read it all. But shoving that aside for the second, an intellectual, an academic, the smartest guy in the world gets saved the, the same way the dumbest guy in the world gets saved. They hear the gospel and they believe. That's how that works. So it doesn't matter. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And last, the gospel is exclusive. If John 14.6 is true, guys, there's no other way to be brought back into the relationship with God the Father except through Christ. There's none. It doesn't exist. There's no other path to heaven. It doesn't matter if you listen to Oprah or anybody else or who you read. If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, there's no other way. Acts 4, verse 12 says the same thing. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we may be saved. It's exclusive. So consider this. That means every fellow student, every friend, every neighbor, every person you work with or for, every person you have a conversation with or see on the train or TV, if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell. That's what that means. Every Muslim, every Hindu, every Sikh, every agnostic, every atheist, you name it, whatever the philosophy or religion is, the Gospel says Jesus is exclusively the only way to life 
and forgiveness. There's no other way. If that sinks home, I think it's difficult not to be among those who are proactively proclaiming the Gospel. There is no other hope. So when you and I comfort ourselves, well, they were a good person, meaningless. What else matters? At the end of the day, we know Jesus or we don't. Let me close with application. I trust most of you here have already heard the Gospel. You've believed it. You've received it. You're going to heaven. God bless us. That's a great place to be, isn't it? Some of us here may, may not have. You know, the gospel is as easy as I simply receive the grace gift God has offered me. I simply say yes to God's assessment of myself. I'm sinful and deficient. And yes to Jesus. Jesus adequately bore my sin and shame on the cross. He rose from the dead, victorious over the grave, sin and death. And He's offered me life. And all I've done is said yes. We don't have to... This isn't hard to figure out. We're just saying yes to God to receive the gift of eternal life through Christ. That's all we're doing. We just say yes, we believe. Guys, when I was preparing for this, there's a bunch of verses related to that too. When I was preparing for this message and I looked at the date, I just thought, wow, Lord, that's so neat. Thank you. You know, it was 38 years ago today at about the same time that I got saved. No kidding. October 5th, 1976, 19-year-old know nothing, was in the student union at K-State. And you know what's funny to me when I think about the gospel proclamation, salvation, just being a part of that? The guy that shared the gospel with me, I kid you not, nice guy, Jim. Jim is distracted. He's looking around at other people. He's reading me his little script. You know, the little, the, the survey, can you take a survey? You know, sure, you know. He's distracted. But the survey leads to the gospel and he just shares the gospel with me and this know-nothing outside the bounds of reality guy gets saved because somebody just shares the simple declaration of the gospel with me. And God reached down that day and saved me, opened my heart, and I get it. And you know, uh, life, life is not easy because you're a Christian. It's harder in ways that it's not for others here. But boy, is it better afterwards, right? But life can be hard. I, I look back at my life. Frankly, I look at the sin in my life today too. You know what one of the hardest things about this message for me was today? How sinful I am. Just how much I miss it. Miss the mark. You know, I say we're idolaters. I think Mike's an idolater. I think we're vain. I'm thinking, I can't believe my vanity. Being a Christian's hard in ways unbelievers don't have it. But guys, I would not trade one day of knowing Christ for anything. What a difference. Hope in life and glory forever in God's presence. Such a deal. Free. God's grace gift to us. What He's done for us, not what we do for Him. We worship an awesome and great God. I'm going to kneel. And if you're comfortable doing so, I invite you to kneel too. And just to offer ourselves to the Lord here because of the realities and the implications of the Gospel. And the worship team, and I think Bill's going to come up front, and we're going to worship in a song and in the Lord's Supper here in moments. And Father God, would You help us esteem You highly above all things. Lord Jesus, would You help us to really give up on ourselves. Holy Spirit, would You inflame our hearts with passion for the Son and for the Father. Lord, would You draw our hearts out into worship because of who You are and what You've done for us in Your Son. 
And Lord, we look forward to the day that we sing your praises. We declare them in the courts of heaven. And until then, help us to do so now. And Father, would you help us to be bold in declaring our allegiance to King Jesus and to making him known in our generation, in his name, for his sake, for your glory. Amen.